Messy church. I would like for you to turn to your neighbor and say, City Church is a messy church because I'm here. <laughs> How many of you know that that is true? And so what we've been doing here at City is we are progressing through the book of 1 Corinthians through the sermon series entitled Messy Church, and I've been so excited about this sermon series. This morning's subtitle under Messy Church is Sanctified and Holy. Sanctified and Holy. I know many of you, when you hear that title, go, I wish I would have slept in. Next week's sermon title is Money, Sex, and Power. So I know you'll really want to be here for that. The reality of it is, though, is that the Apostle Paul writes 1 Corinthians as a response to reports that he is receiving from a letter as well as personal contacts with people about the church in Corinth. And what we know is, is that the church isn't doing real well. We're going to get to that in a moment. But before we dive into this morning's sermon, I want to give a brief recap from last Sunday. The reason why is, is because I spent the entire sermon giving the context and the background, which is extremely important. And so first of all, we need to talk about the author of the letter. His name is the Apostle Paul. We have an incredibly unique window into the life of Paul because he writes He's the most prolific writer of the Newer Testament, but not only that, not only do we have all of his letters, is that the book of Acts, one of the books in the Newer Testament, the book of Acts actually traces Paul's life as a follower of Jesus. He steps into the book of Acts in chapters 8 and 9, and when we meet him, we realize he is probably the least likely person that God would ever use to become an apostle, and to be the most prolific writer in the Newer Testament. When we meet him, he is overseeing the execution of a follower of Jesus. Talk about the persecuted church. The apostle Paul was the leader of it. He, at the, that point in time, was one of the leaders of the Jewish community, and as one of those leaders, he was sanctioning the execution of Stephen and when the first century church fled Jerusalem and began to carry the gospel outside of Israel, the Apostle Paul asked for a letter from the chief priest so that he can continue to hunt Christians even after they have exited Israel. And it's on the road to Damascus, Syria, that he has an encounter with the resurrected Christ. That encounter revolutionizes everything about Paul. The point at which we discover the Apostle Paul with his relationship with the church in Corinth is Acts chapter 18. And it's in Acts chapter 18 that we discover that the Apostle Paul does in Corinth what he's been doing in many large influential metropolitan cities. The Apostle Paul would plant churches by going to the synagogue 
And by debating and preaching and arguing with the Jews in the synagogue that Jesus Christ truly is the Messiah. That was his M.O. But as we pick up our first reading, and this gives us an understanding a little bit about Paul and a little bit about Corinth, we pick up the pioneering or the planting of the church in Corinth in Acts 18, verses 6 through 8. And here's what we discover. Paul is in the synagogue. He is preaching about Jesus. And here's what those two verses tell us. They opposed Paul and became abusive. He shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your heads, I am innocent of it. In other words, he'd been preaching the gospel to them. They are becoming verbally and physically um, abusive to him. So he shakes, and this is kind of a Middle Eastern thing, he shakes his cloak, the blood is on your head, and he says this, from now on, I will go to the Gentiles. There is a shift in the mission of the Apostle Paul from that moment on. He ceases to go to the synagogues, and from that moment on, the focus of his ministry is toward Gentiles or non-Jews. And it says this, then Paul left the synagogue, and he went next door. So he goes out of the synagogue, turns right, enters into the next dwelling, and it says he went next door to the house of Tid or Tidius Justice, a worshiper of God, and Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. So here's what we know. The church in Corinth takes off when the Apostle Paul begins to shift his focus. And when he does, many in Corinth become followers of Jesus, but it's not just Gentiles. There's also a lesser percentage of Jews that are a part of that church plant as well. Now what we can notice is, is that the church plant had a rough start. Did you get that feeling? He's in there, he's trying to plant a church they become so abusive that he has to exit. And when he does, he begins to change his focus and the church takes off. Listen, there are some of us here that are going to be called to be pastors. Some of you have already. Learn from this. Just because you're called and just because you're in the right place doesn't always mean it will be easy. Reading on, we discover in the book of Acts that the Apostle Paul stayed 18 months in Corinth. That was very unusual for him to stay that long. Now, here's what we need to know about Corinth, just quickly recapping from last week, and it's this, that Corinth is a wealthy, booming city that Caesar Augustus himself had rebuilt in 44 B.C., the reason why he rebuilt it was because Corinth is in Greece on an isthmus, which is a four and a half mile wide strip of land whereby ships coming up from the south can come into one of three great harbors in Corinth, unload their goods, the goods travel four and a half miles over land, are reloaded on ships, and head to Rome. It saves them a 100 mile loop in the ship and one of the turns that they would make was extremely dangerous. As you can imagine, 
the city of Corinth is booming. But you see, not only is it booming economically, but an ancient historian tells us that there was at least 26 sacred places in that city. Not all of them were temples, but these facilities were dedicated and devoted to the worship of many gods, the pantheon of the Greco-Roman world. And not only that, there was also the worship of mystery cults. Needless to say, everyone in Corinth, other than the Jews, are polytheistic. They worship many gods. But at the center of the god worship of Corinth is Aphrodite. And she is the goddess of passion, procreation, and relationship. Ultimately, worship to her was a sex cult. Again, money was flowing like a river, but also was promiscuity. It was on the menu of the day. And again, next week, the title of my sermon is Money, Sex, and Power. But all of a sudden, the Apostle Paul plants a church there in the center of Corinth. What's fascinating is Corinth has actually become a noun. You can be Corinthian. It's also an adjective. You can look it up on dictionary.com and you will, you will find that Corinthian is also an adjective that describes a person who is overindulging in luxury and pleasure. I have struggled to communicate what Corinthian means. So there's a quick little video that's going to help us to understand about Corinthian. Please roll film. We've cushioned Cordova's ride with thick rubber mounts at all suspension points. Our patented transverse front suspension keeps Cordova's ride luxurious. Cordova. To drive it is to experience the pleasure of a truly roadworthy automobile in the Chrysler tradition of luxury. Yes, even rich Corinthian leather. Chrysler Engineering achieves fuel economy for the times. Styling in timeless good taste. You owe yourself a ride in this new, smaller Chrysler, Cordova. I like what they've done to my car. Do you understand what Corinthians is now? How many of you saw that ad when it came out? You're over 40, right? That creepy little rubbing of the leather seat. Rich Corinthian leather. But you see, Corinthian means that. It means luxury and excess. And then the Apostle Paul sends a letter to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 3. Here's where we're going to focus this morning. The letter begins, this is the first paragraph. Paul writes, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God, where? In Corinth. And then he describes what he means. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, meaning you and me. He knew his letter would go beyond Corinth, and here we are, 2,000 years later, and we're reading his letter. He knew this. Reading on, their Lord and ours, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, the recipients of his letter lived in Corinth, we're called to read it too, but they were the specific first readers. 
And the problem is, is that the church in Corinth was more Corinthian than Christian. The church in Corinth was more Corinthian than sanctified. The church in Corinth was more Corinthian than holy. You see, it was a messy church. But you see, Paul's letter that he writes to them brings instruction, confrontation, but hope. He does not write them off. He comes with a pastoral heart. But the simple phrase that we're going to focus on for the next 20 minutes is going to be 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. Here it is. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. Who is the letter written to? It's written to the Christians. So listen, if you are here and you are not a follower of Jesus, I want you to listen, but Paul's letter is not for you. But if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus, this letter and that sentence is for us. It is absolutely for us. And I want to share this very, very quickly. The Lord's put this on my heart. I have noticed that oftentimes Christian leaders nationally and even locally at times, they try to impose a Christian ethic on people who are not Christians. Let me put it this way. We do not force our calling to be holy on those who are not sanctified. We don't do that. Here's why. When people do that, everyone gets frustrated. The Christian that tries to do that is frustrated. And oh, by the way, the non-Christians that have this forced on them get frustrated as well. No amen there. There should be. Because here's why. 1 Corinthians is written to people who follow Jesus. Again, 1 Corinthians 1 and 2 says this, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people. As I was putting this sermon together, there's two groups of people that helped me write my sermons. And in the second group, there was a young lady this past week who helps me do this. And what she noticed in this challenge to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and those called to be his holy people, here's what she noticed. That to those sanctified is past tense. And those called to be holy is future tense. I want you to catch that. That the Christian life has to do with the here and now, but also what we are called to. And that is pretty much Paul's point. Now here's what I know about this sermon. This sermon is going to be a little bit deeper theologically than most, but I believe you can handle it. And I also want you to understand some things about the faith of following Jesus because Paul assumes some things in this letter. There are three things I want to talk about. Sanctification, salvation, and redemption. I want to talk about those three things for the next brief moments. I'm going to do sanctification last because that's what Paul mentions in the sentence that we just read. I want to begin with salvation. 
Salvation is best explained by a verse that the Apostle Paul writes to another church called the Church of Ephesus. It's Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Here's what he writes. For it is by grace you have been, what? Saved. Salvation. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this is not from you. It is the gift of God. It's something that's given. And it's definitely not by works so that no one can boast. You see, if salvation was something that you could earn and work for, you'd become boastful. Paul knows this. So Paul pens this verse that explains salvation, and he explains it the following way. It is by grace that salvation comes to you. Grace literally means gift. It's a gift that is given, and it's not by works. You cannot earn it, but you can only receive it. You see, this verse says you have been saved. Past tense, you are saved. But you see, in the sentence that we read, and the one that we're focusing on, the Apostle Paul also calls people to be holy. Future tense. And in the midst of that, he writes another verse in the book of 1 Corinthians I want us to read. It's about redemption. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. Let's read it together. He says this. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. Did you notice how Apostle Paul begins that, that verse? He begins by saying this, do you not know? It's a question. Do you not know this? You see, when I was raised, there was a common phrase, and the common phrase was this, ignorance is bliss. You've heard that before. Every time that would be said, my dad would lean over to me and he would say, what you don't know can, aha, see how that was quieter? The first one is ignorance is what? Bliss. And my dad would lean over and he'd say, what you don't know can kill you. Now here's why. I grew up on a farm. There's a lot of heavy equipment. There were a lot of big animals. And there was a lot of power tools. And my dad knew what you don't know can hurt you. So he didn't like ignorance as bliss, neither does Paul. Because as the Apostle Paul is writing to these people, what he's talking about is life or death. And he says to them, do you not know two things? First, when you and I say yes to Jesus, the Holy Spirit dwells in us. When it comes to redemption and to holiness, it is mission critical to understand the second I say yes to Jesus, my body, my physical body becomes the temple of the Holy Spirit. And the second thing he wants you to know is you were bought at a price. 
You see, this is where redemption becomes real. Redemption becomes real because that Old Testament theological concept of redemption has everything to do with legal terminology. I know some of us like to go really deep, so I'm going to scratch the surface, but I would encourage you later to go back and do a word study on redemption in the Older Testament. Redemption, though, scratching the surface in the Older Testament means this. Redemption involves deliverance from bondage based on a redeemer paying a ransom. In other words, someone has been taken captive either because of their own debt or because militarily they've been conquered. A redeemer is someone that brings redemption by paying an agreed-upon ransom to set you free. And the Bible in the Older Testament and in the Newer Testament talks about redemption. But please know this. All of the words for redemption in the Older Testament are legal terminology. Saying that you've been redeemed is a legal fact. It's not emotional. It's legal. And so when it says that God is our redeemer, that he brings redemption, and that he pays a ransom for us is absolutely huge. And in the Newer Testament, all of the Older Testament passages about redemption point to Jesus. But I want us to clearly know that salvation and redemption are things that are given to you. They're given. You cannot earn them. But you would notice that the Apostle Paul says to the church in Corinth, you are sanctified. Sanctified. Here's what I want us to completely understand. Salvation, redemption, you receive them. They're free. God redeems you with the ransom of the death of his son. When you look at salvation, it's a gift given by grace. But we need to clearly understand sanctification is different. Sanctification is a process whereby once you're redeemed, once you are saved, you journey with the Holy Spirit to become more like Jesus. It's intentional. It's a process. It's where you give all you've got because God gave all he has. But any smart person would say, now wait a second. Sanctification, when Paul writes it, is past tense. You who are sanctified, past tense, and called to be holy. So why is that? If sanctification is a process, why is it announced? In past tense, I want to give the best illustration I can think of. It's about being married. You see, on October 21st, 1990, I was married. Here's the proof. <laughs> Fran, wasn't that awesome? 
She's not even looking at me at the moment. <laughs> she can't believe I put that picture up there. But you see, on October the 21st, 1990, I was married. But if you think that day was the end of it, you're crazy. <laughs> married October 21st, 1990. So for... 29 years and 13 days, we have been on a journey. You see, marriage has a starting point, but it's also a process. And we believe in the process. Here at City Church, we believe in marriage. That's why none of our staff will marry anyone unless they go through premarital counseling. Why? It's not just about a day. It's about a lifetime. A lot of people put more emphasis and energy into one day, the wedding day, than they do the marriage. And so here at City Church, we have Pastor Gabe, and he is over our marriage ministries, where not only does he oversee premarital, but he has marriage mentors as well. People that will journey with others during the difficulties of marriage. The same way we have Pastor Gabe, God gives us the Holy Spirit for sanctification. Was I sanctified the day I said yes to Jesus? That's the day the relationship began. But sanctification is a process that literally lasts a lifetime. So how in the world do we put feet to our faith with this? What does it look like for you and me to come to salvation, and if you have not done that yet, I challenge you to do so. Receive the gift of salvation and redemption that God offers us freely, and all we have to do is repent of where we've been, agree with God that it's wrong, ask him to forgive us, and we are saved. It's a gift. It's free. Redemption is free. The ransom has already been paid. All we need to do is reach out by faith and receive the ransom. But sanctification is different. Sanctification involves you and me actually applying ourselves to this faith journey. Now, when we think about faith to our faith, I want you to clearly understand what Paul never says. Please hear me. He never says this. He does not come to the church of Corinth and say, remove yourselves from culture. He never says that. That would have been the easiest way to guarantee sanctification and holiness. Once you become a Christian, Paul would have said, turtle up, withdraw from culture, leave Corinth, Move out into the country, hunker down, make sure all your friends are Christians, and wait. He never says that. Paul, by the virtue of this letter, is assuming that you and I, when we follow Jesus, we will stay engaged with culture, we will be in culture, but through the power of the Holy Spirit, through fellowship with other people, through life groups and small groups on grounds, that we're traveling in the same direction, and that we will deal with the tension that all of us feel when we walk with Jesus in a culture that does not. 
But I'll tell you this, the Apostle Paul and Jesus himself expect us to be more Christian than Charlottesvillian. That we are to be more Christian than the American dream. That we are to be more Christian than the culture around us. That our lives should look like we follow a different king. And that will affect money, sex, and power. It will. And Jesus expects it. And Paul is calling the church in Corinth the worst, most debaucherous city in all of his known world. He is calling the church to live differently than the world. And he believes they can do it. And so do I. Again, Paul in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and 10, he has this little phrase. You are not your own. You were bought at a price. You've been redeemed. Bought at a price means you were redeemed. God paid a ransom for you. And because of that, honor God with your bodies. Paul is calling the church of Corinth to a different level. So I would say that here's a working definition of sanctification for city church. Sanctification is living in affectionate indebtedness to Jesus, my Savior and Redeemer, not to pay him back, but to follow and serve him out of loving gratitude for what he has done for me. There are a lot of Christians that they're saved they're redeemed, and they spend the rest of their lives thinking that holiness is a way of paying Jesus back for the redemption and for the ransom that he has provided. You could never do that. What we do here at City is our sanctification, our holiness is based on the awareness that Jesus Christ has saved me, he has redeemed me, and as I move out into culture, I am serving him out of affectionate indebtedness. I serve him out of loving gratitude for what he has done for me. You see, putting feet to our faith means I think differently about holiness. Holiness is not avoiding things. That's not what it's about. If all of your holiness is about what you avoid, that's only half of it. Holiness is about avoiding certain things, but primarily holiness is about moving towards other things. It's about pursuing Jesus. It's about sanctification. It's about listening to the Holy Spirit. It's about letting scripture come alive in our hearts so where we live differently than the culture around us. Because you see, the Apostle Paul says for those in Corinth who are sanctified and are called to holiness. Holiness is the calling of Jesus. He calls us to it. Here's what I know. I know that a lot of us that are sitting here are sitting here because we truly want to follow Jesus. That's why we're here.
So I want to encourage you. I want to encourage you. Salvation and redemption are free. Sanctification is where you partner with the Holy Spirit. You partner with other people who are partnering with the Holy Spirit. And you walk your life out in culture. In culture. And if your Christian faith has not produced in you some sense of stretching, some sense of tension, then I want to encourage you. Maybe that's because you're not truly living the way Jesus is calling you to live for one of two reasons. One of them is because you've completely extracted yourself from culture. Paul never says to do that. If you're not living in this tension, it also might be, and I pray that it isn't. But for some of us, it is. We have given in to culture. And we look more like Charlevillians than Christians. Would you please stand with me as we take a few moments to worship God together? And as we stand together and we worship God, we're going to be led in the worship song about God fighting our battles. I love this song, love it because God's a God who fights our battles. But when it comes to sanctification, we are called to partner with the Holy Spirit in the sanctification of our lives. <laughs>